podcast ain't played nobody, we're going to lead off the show straight into my inbox. Just going to wreck our syllabus for our program 2016 Conference USA football television schedule. You ready? I assume I've never I've never been more ready. Okay. Um, I'm going to take this point or this opportunity to ask openly solicit. I'm I'm supposed to be launching a new column in July, Bill, and uh, that's terrifying because they run every week and you have to make sure your content is straight. Um, so I'm going to be soliciting ideas, <laughs> taking questions and suggestions. Um, this this Conference USA money situation, the fact that basically they're losing money off their TV deal, uh, it's pretty unique because everyone else is making money or trying to make money. Um, the CUSA does not have that luxury. I wonder if anyone would care about that story. Now, I feel like, Bill, if we ask the, the podcast ain't played nobody uh, inner circle here, that everyone's gonna just going to say yes. Well, of course. Yeah. Which CUSA game... On this television show, I know you don't even have it in front of you. Can you name me a CUSA game in the first half of the season that you are fired up? By the way, uh, you're a soccer guy. Yep. Uh, BN Sports? Yeah. Yeah, they're carrying CUSA games. Yeah, so um, BN Sports is not an option on my cable system in mid-Missouri. However, um, to watch a Sheffield Wednesday game last a uh, couple weeks ago, I did the free trial for Fubo.tv, F-U-B-O.tv. Um, it is amazing, and I'm going to now continue it? the subscription. Basically, it's a service that pulls together a lot of soccer channels, so like three BNs, a couple Univisions, uh, this, that, and the other. But now I have BN, uh, and so now I get to watch all the Conference USA that I want. Um, I know everybody listening is very jealous of me. But, for, you know, it's like $10 a month and, and you get all this potential soccer access. And, and now it's soccer slash Conference USA football slash pivot, the pivot channel, which, as far as I can tell, only shows Buffy and Veronica Mars reruns, which is fine. Pretty solid. Uh, I, I didn't know we were heading this direction, um, but I am openly soliciting those of you who are um, at the, the uh, I guess, in the depths of, of uh, a PAPN listener level of college football fandom. I'm going to cut the cable, or try and keep the cable cut this year. And part of the reason is I'm living in an apartment right now as my house is being completely gutted and renovated. Um, and I will not be back in by Labor Day. I'll be back in shortly thereafter, which will be a nightmare for my, um, my scheduling and sanity and what such, and probably my marriage. Um, but I'm thinking about just staying cord cut. I got, I got the intranet here at the apartment, and um, right now it's not a problem. Not a problem at all. Uh, I have no sports team I'm really following at the moment. The hockey playoffs are over for me, and the Atlanta Braves are abysmal. Um, Bill, idea you 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 got the straight up God fearing American cable, um, but I'm curious if anyone out there has the any of the following the Sling. Curious about the Sling because I have a Roku, and then I'm curious if anybody out there has tried PlayStation TV, which um, is basically a, kind of a cable television package that you access through your PlayStation. So. Um, if you're out there, if you think that's good, if you're a sports fan, I'm actually genuinely curious. Yeah, so um, as soon as we figure out the sports aspect of this, my wife's cutting the cord in a second. Um, wow, okay. What are you going to do, though? Because, well, I mean, we don't know. I'm going to listen to the answers that you get. And, okay, and this is legit here. But yeah, I mean, if anybody's listening, and, and I know we have one or two uh, overseas listeners, um, I'm curious how they how they get the their stuff. Um YouTube is helping, but obviously for what we do, we're going to sort of experience these games live. I, I, I just realized that 
I don't know. I'm sure I can access BN in some... Am I saying that right? It's just BN, right? BN. That's how I say it anyway. Okay, that's fine. That works. Um, by the way, BN Sports here. We're talking about conference games that they've dumped off their their uh, their coverage rights to. New Mexico State and... Well, that's not a conference game. I'm sorry. New Mexico State, UTEP. Um, where's the conference <laughs> game at? Um, yeah, UTSA, Rice... FIU, Western Kentucky. Wow, this is not good for them. This is really not good for them. Uh, the good news is for them, they actually pretty have a healthy bowl lineup um, that are all carried on the ESPN networks. So uh, it's a joke that we didn't even get to. What is, what, what's our biggest game here? Um, probably the biggest game uh, in terms of any kind of exposure right now, if you don't count the sacrifice games like Western Kentucky going to Alabama, and Charlotte going to Louisville, and things things of that nature. I would even call Southern. Well, you know what? I like Southern Mrs. Chances in Kentucky. Let's 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 keep that salty, shall we? But Baylor is playing at Rice, um, and Baylor is notorious for scheduling kind of strange two and ones and one and ones. And I saw them play at UL Monroe a couple years ago. It's been moved to a Friday night on ESPN. That may be the single highest exposure game they have. Um, actually, that same night they also have Arizona State at UTSA. Um, UTSA is doing a pretty decent job of scheduling, I might add, mainly because they have a really nice facility in San Antonio. It's a fun city to visit. Right. And it's, it, you know, at least for another year or two, you're going to, you're going to get your W and go home. So not the worst in the world. Uh, UTSA reminds me of sort of kind of what Tulane did in the aughts and a little bit in this decade where they're able to snag a home game simply because teams get to visit New Orleans. I know when I was a student at the University of Mississippi, it was always preferable to go to a Tulane game than it was to go to a Memphis game. Um, or, you know, I had friends at Mississippi State who felt the same way about a Tulane game versus a UAB game. Um, I think UTSA could, could carve out a nice little a nice little niche for themselves. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty abysmal. Um, if you're interested to see how abysmal it is, I'm kind of interested. I'm kind of I'm kind of interested to see how bad this thing could get. Um, I was making my plans for media days, Bill, last night doing some travel work. You and I are going to be together at one of them. Um, and if you listen to the show, you can probably figure out which one. But <laughs> I'm electing right now to go to the Sunbelt media event over the CUSA. Um, and not just because the Sunbelt media event is in New Orleans. Um, I just feel like there's – I know you don't like to do this because we're generalizing. But doesn't it feel like there's more interesting things going on in the Sunbelt? Than Conference USA. I mean, well, last year, Sunbelt was a better conference than Conference USA. Yeah, um, I just think there's more dynamic football there. And I, I just. Well, th- because Sunbelt has football teams and Conference USA has markets. And I. I Damn, I'm, that's, a, that's a good answer. <laughs> I mean, this was the most fascinating thing um, about like this. Well, okay, this wasn't the most fascinating thing, but it was a very interesting thing um, in, in the last round of realignment how. Conference USA plucked a bunch of schools from Sunbelt that, and then you know got a couple expansion franchises, and they were basically trying to claim cities. Right. Uh, and then Sunbelt said, oh, well, okay, and went and grabbed Appalachian State and Georgia Southern and became a better conference, and or at least evenly matched. Like, they were just slightly better in my S&P numbers. But, I mean, they're, basically they're now, from an overall average quality perspective, they're basically the, at the same level. And Conference USA plucked from Sunbelt. So um, I was really curious how that experiment would work out. And maybe, you know, 
10 years from now, okay, 10 years from now, we don't know anything, but I mean, long term, it was an okay sounding play. Grab Charlotte, grab Old Dominion, grab uh, programs that aren't really programs, but that are in cities that might, you know, if they hire the right coach and recruit well, maybe they turn into something impressive. Like from a potential yeah. standpoint, sure, there's there's something to be said for it. But in the short term, in the two or three year short term, A, it clearly did not even slightly help them from a TV perspective. And I know their timing was bad on this in terms of when they had to strike a new deal. Um, also, keep and, in mind, if you're, if you're yelling at your radio or your podcasting device, um, well, that's what the Big Ten did. Well, the difference is, is they... It's like old chewing gum that lost its flavor and then just adding more old chewing gum. They didn't have anything to absorb that. When they took Maryland and Rutgers, everybody made their jokes and we did the whole, oh, it's a TV market move, da 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 to make more money. Yeah, but like you still have like Ohio State and Michigan State and Penn right. State and like you still have like big awesome brands that you can then rotate, you know, Maryland through and you don't have to the problem with with taking on Charlotte's and Old Dominions is that you also were just sitting already with kind of a bad hand to begin with because the AAC had cherry-picked, and at that point you're, you're pairing those either neophyte or kind of you know obscure programs with Middle Tennessee State, Western Kentucky, and Southern Miss, and North Texas, which is you know not to speak ill of any of those programs in terms of their – everybody's allowed to play football if you can get it together, but it's just – that's not compelling. I think one of the biggest things is that they, they – all joking aside, we'll move on in a second. You look at this television schedule, I know why they're losing money. It's uh, it's a similar situation to what people in the MAC have talked to me about, what people in the Sun Belt have talked about. They, they cannot create fun, dynamic games out of conference. So yeah. you, you either have sacrifice games that you have to take for financial reasons, like Western Kentucky going to Alabama. I've been to a Western Kentucky-Alabama game. It's miserable for everybody involved. Then they, they that that's kind of it. What, what they're lacking is, and and maybe I'm just going to use this as my like 250th stump to see Louisiana Monroe and Louisiana Tech schedule a series together. Is <laughs> they are lacking dynamic games on even footing out of conference. It's just not there. I mean, what if we always talk about applying those those challenge concepts from from non conference basketball season to football? But I mean, what if there was some sort of standing agreement for for I'm gonna I'm gonna shape this live. I haven't even pitched this to Bill. Bill, <laughs> you can shoot it down before we before we go into your previews. Um, we're in the ACC basement, so trust me, y'all just hang with me now. It's not like I'm it's not like I'm putting off some super hot, sexy SEC action. Um, what if you take the uh, number one, number two, maybe number three Mac and Sunbelt or Mac Sunbelt Cusa teams, whatever, and then have them at a non conference neutral site kickoff early on in the season? Because some of these, I know some of these schools automatically tie in to go play Ohio State or Florida or whatever for the paycheck. But in some way, that's got to, you've got to find a way to create revenue outside of those games. Because in addition to being boring football for all of us, and Bill, what are the, every time you see a ULM beat in Arkansas, I mean, how many other, how many other times do you see a 48 to nothing football game? What, what is that? Oh, yeah. One in 50? Well, right. I mean, that's like a, you know, a game like ULM Arkansas that year is probably like I, I didn't have my current S&P plus structure and I didn't have like the, the win probability odds. I'm assuming that would have been like 90 percent for Arkansas. So that would mean 90 percent of the time uh, the Arkansas wins. And most of those wins are going to be by a pretty healthy margin. So, um, 
So, I mean, so, yeah, so 10 out of 100 times it's possible, and then maybe it happens 1 out of 100 times? Well, no, I mean, it would be win probability of 90 to 95. So 1 of every 10 to 20 times the, the ULM will win. It's not a 1 in 50. I got you. I, I don't think it was that bad because ULM was pretty decent that year. But um, although I guess early in the year we didn't know that. So that made it seem even more, you know, because we didn't know how much Arkansas was going to fall. We didn't know any of that. So it probably felt like it was a 99% Arkansas uh, thing there uh, at the time. And it's impossible, by the way, it's impossible to predict any of this kind of stuff because you go through in your head and you think, okay, ULM beats Alabama, Nick Saban's first year, ULM beats Arkansas after total program implosion, the likes of which we haven't seen until this year with Baylor. And then I'm trying to think, you know, transition year for Georgia Southern, they beat Florida in an incredibly weird circumstance. And App State, Michigan is, I mean, that's probably the cleanest of these matchups where you didn't have any kind of crazy extenuating circumstance other than just a bad football team we didn't know about. I mean, there's, it's really hard to find these and, and you can't really schedule for them. And, and again, nine times out of 10, you're going to get, you're going to get just an afterthought of football. Right. Just and you, wa- you watch, you know, you, you pay attention just in case. But, yeah, you know, most of the time you're not going to get. So, okay, I have two ideas here, and, and one of them I wrote about relatively recently. Okay. Um, and one, another one I've wrote, written about before. These are both kind of pet issues for me. But, I mean, first one, you know, I, 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 a while back I, I posted my updated uh, promotion relegation post that we kind of evergreen each year. Um, with it, I also had another idea about, you know, the Big 12, instead of adding two teams to get to 12, they should add, you know, they should go to 24. Um, and, and, you know, talking about the way that could work with Tier 1 and Tier 2 and whatnot. At the end of that piece, I mentioned that, okay, fine, if the Big 12 is not going to do that, the AAC should. Or they should have some sort of basically mid-major Champions League kind of structure where the top X yeah. teams go in. But So, I mean, that's a big idea that's probably too complicated. But... What I one thing that I wish would get pursued further. So, uh, I, I wrote about this in like 2012 or something when I was first when Jason and I were first coming up with ideas. Um, but the idea of a bracket buster that, that was one of my favorite basketball ideas, um, especially at first. Like basically, you know that in basketball when they had this thing anyway, they don't have it anymore. But you you would know that on like February 20th, uh, you'd be playing somebody. And then once you get closer to February 20th, then, um, you know, the teams in the pool, they try to match up the teams that are like the, the teams that need a good RPI win. They would kind of pit those together. And so you'd get I don't remember how big it was, but let's say you have 40 teams involved. You have 20 games. Uh, you know, 10 of them are going to be, you know, the equivalent of New Mexico State versus like, you know, Akron or something. But then you'd get five pretty interesting one and five vital ones that would really help or hurt somebody's NCAA tournament cause. Um, what I don't understand is why couldn't we do that in football? Like say it's a two year agreement and you know, this year on the first Saturday in November, you're going to be going to be playing a home game. That's all, you know, until say three weeks beforehand. Um, and in three weeks beforehand, the pairings are announced based on who's doing well and who's not, basically. And so you, you would get a New Mexico State, Eastern Michigan, um, but then you would also get like a Western Kentucky versus Toledo or yeah. um, or whatever, a Boise State versus uh, Marshall or things like that that could really help somebody's cause if you're in the playoff or if you're you know trying to figure out who gets that power bowl bid at the end of the year. And it would get you know decent ratings. So if you're if you're in a TV desperate conference like Conference USA, 
you know, if the logistics could be proven in some way, and I think they could be, why wouldn't you do that? No, I think it's, it's, I mean, at this point, do something. Yeah. (laughs) If you want to take, if you want to take any of these ideas and to, and just, and kind of execute to about 25%, I think that would be great. It doesn't have to be a postseason structure. Obviously we know that the, the bowl contracts are, are, you know, tangled and, and, very obtuse and they involve so many other properties and also you kind of have to kiss the ring with ESPN to make anything happen. But I think you could at least find something one week in a year to create a more dynamic product underneath. Yeah. And maybe it's not the first weekend of the year, just, just thinking from a counter programming sense, maybe it's, um, I don't know, second week. It's, it's funny actually that because I was going through other television schedules as I was doing some editorial planning Week two has the and, and kind of week three has the same drop off this year that it, it, that it you know it has in years past, which is we've gotten we've gotten better this year. Maybe the absolute best at at plotting a dynamic, fun superstar Labor Day weekend, and then weeks two and three kind of fall flat on their face until conference play begins in earnest. So maybe maybe you stick it in there. Maybe you you, you create something the third week of September. It doesn't really matter. You can make your own tradition here. It's not yeah. really an issue. Um, it's something that I'm shocked that some of the, the TV partners haven't gotten behind. Uh, it's just very confusing to me in general. And this is also would be, and I think at this point we have to stake our disclaimer that we are in some way, shape, or form part of the, the Comcast NBC Leviathan here. But they aren't listed currently in the CUSA deal that I'm looking at. If you're CBS Sports, if you're NBC, if you're somebody like that, I don't know. It wouldn't cost a ton of money to build something out and do something different just to you know, kind of... I don't know. Create a little identity on the market. So yeah. Well, that was. I, the, I, I mean, that was about as that was about as depressing as we could have gotten on the CUSA. So. I mean, uh, yeah. I really. It, it's what's been depressing for me this entire off season is is seeing the complete and to, well, not just this off season, but it, it just gets reinforced over and over again the complete and total lack of vision from people in charge. Yes. Um, as we move through this, and and you know we see it every single time the Big Twelve make, look at me making a, a sig here. We see it every single time uh, you know the Big Twelve announces something and everybody yells at it and they go, oh, I guess that's a bad idea, and then they do the thing they should have done all along. Um, that you know it seems like that that is the case for everybody in college football, and it's 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 just depressing. Just put us in charge of the damn sport, and we'll fix everything, right, Bill? Choose yeah. your own adventure. And this is based off your own work, so I can do this blind and on the spot. Because whoa, 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 whoa! Are you going to ACC? Yeah, we Pardon? have to make fun of the Big Twelve first. That was my sieg. Well, well, okay. Actually, I'll push off what I was going to do. It has some Big Twelve in it, but if, is there something specific you want to get to before I start asking preview questions? Well, we can go. We can do preview. Um, at some point, I have to make fun of Big Twelve divisions, though. So it's up to oh, you. Oh, I thought happens. we were holding that. Sorry, we got a great question about that. I thought we were holding that for the mailbag. Okay, okay. Well, we'll do that later then. Okay. Tease. That was a tease. Bill, I have pulled up in front of me your uh-huh. the the current page, the front page of the one hundred twenty eighteen preview. Currently, Georgia Tech, as we record this, is is up front. Uh, yeah. Choose your own adventure, Bill. I'm going to ask you questions about one of the three following items. And you, you get to choose where we go. Okay, you ready? Let's go. Option one, where is Duke in five years? Okay. Option two, why aren't we talking about Holgerson on the hot seat? Okay. By the way, Bill finished with Big 12 too. Well, uh, sort of. And option three, 
Why do you hate Bronco Mendenhall? <laughs> well, of those three, A, I don't want to... No, 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 no. just pick it. Well, you know, I, I, I talk through my, my process. Okay. It's a process. All right, talk through it. A, I don't want to do any. I don't want to acknowledge anything about Big Twelve previews at the moment. Okay. Uh, B, we can't. So, so what you're saying is I can't fantasy fire Holgo. I mean, you can, but you know, you're using my previews as a jumping off point, and and we're not going to talk about my Big Twelve previews at the moment. All right. Um, Ooh, I, smell, I smell some hot Duke coverage coming. <laughs> See, I was really hoping you were going to ask something about Georgia Tech. That's the one I wanted to talk about. Well, let's that, talk well, about Duke. Let's talk about Duke. Well, no, I, we are going to finish with Georgia Tech, actually. Okay, just, okay, okay, of, okay. Of the ones leading up to today's Georgia yeah. Tech preview. Um, look, we have to talk about the bad programs. Uh, all right, let's talk about Duke. Here's, here, this is my thing. This is my thing. I came up as a reporter under David Cutcliffe. David Cutcliffe, I have nothing but compliments for. Probably wouldn't have this job if I had come up under most of the the, the head coaches and their, <laughs> and their cultures in the Southeastern Conference in the in the early aughts, um, just because that was really the time in which access and culture changed so dramatically in college sports, um, especially in the Southeastern Conference as the money started to roll in. Love David Cutcliffe. Think that maybe he's winding down, and uh, you know, as he should. This is not, a, you know, it's not a regression issue. This isn't a, um, I, I'm not questioning his capabilities, his faculties, anything like that. I am just curious. Do we see the consistency and the respectability? That's a good word, right? To describe the entire, the entire Cutcliffe Duke experience. Respectability, formidability at points of David Cutcliffe once he is gone. So, holy crap, David Cutcliffe is only 61 years old. I know. I, I as you were talking, I pulled up his page, thinking yeah. I was going to see that he was like sixty-eight, and that yeah, he'd no, be retiring soon. He doesn't have to retire. Well, he um, has. He, he had some health issues. He had multiple health issues. Both yeah. When he was uh, once as a, it goes back to when he was an offensive coordinator at Tennessee. He had multiple health, health issues while I covered him at Ole Miss, and then he had a, I want to say double or quadruple bypass, and was unable to take the Notre Dame job, the OC job. So this this is this is what's got me thinking, and I'm also thinking, what a wonderful renaissance! What a great, what a great defining final chapter for a man's career. He deserves it. But then, what is 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 Duke sustainable? Well, so the thing about what Codcliffe has done, um, he hasn't. He he's basically raised the floor. Uh, so, like one of the th- the points that I found fascinating as I was putting together the my Duke preview was looking at the S and P Plus rankings. If you ignore the record, okay, uh, just and look specifically at the rankings. Basically, in the time he's been there, there was one bad year. Oh nine, they ranked one oh four. There was one good year in in twenty thirteen. They ranked forty eight. The other six years, they've ranked seventy fifth, seventy first, seventy fourth, seventieth, seventy third, and seventy fifth. Like they have been the model of consistency. When you look at the record, you know, a, a few breaks here and there have been kind of funky, but basically the difference has been that um, the early on they're close, they were terrible in close games. You could, you know, if, if we're talking about general, in general terms, maybe you consider that a, a learning how to win thing. But from, from 08 to 2011, they went 6 and 13 to, in get, uh, games decided by one possession. From okay. since then, since since 2012, they've gone 13 and seven in those games, and that has basically dictated their improvement overall. So, 
Well, let me let me jump in here because okay. often when Duke is talked about nationally, it time for time for an ignorant narrative. Um, <laughs> it's always it's always Duke's success relative to a vacuum created by some other issue in the ACC, be it Miami right. down, Florida State was down for a minute, you know, or not down for a minute, but had. This is sort of, I don't know exactly where these timelines line up, but there was a period in which Florida State was still reestablishing what it is now under Fisher. Um, well, Virginia Tech starting to sort of, how would we say, corrode maybe slowly. It's always, Duke's success was always relative to someone else's failures in the ACC, and I don't know if the ACC works that way. Well, I, so here's, here's the thing. Like, you know, that, that kind of corrosive aspect, that explains how, like, a, a barely top 40 Wake Forest team could win the ACC uh, in 06. But yeah, because I, I, I think that's, isn't that, isn't, tell me if I'm wrong here, as the numbers guy, when you talk in terms like that, you can, you can play that logic out for one single season. I just don't think you can play it out over well, five no. or six. And that's why, you know, that's why I like looking at things from a rankings perspective and, and kind of ignoring the record for a second. The, the quality of your conference is going to affect the record, obviously. Um, but it doesn't necessarily affect uh, the, the your own quality. Now, I mean, there are certainly aspects where if it, if if a powerful rival is falling apart and you're able to pluck some of those recruits, then sure, then then it affects your quality too. Uh, and, and but you know, for Duke especially right now, what they've proven is they can hit that uh, you know that that mark about number seventy every single year now. And before Cutcliffe got there, there was no such thing as seventies. So I think, you know, especially if, if he's able to, you know, if they're able to land a guy, maybe a cut, a cut what's his name, um, at, at East Carolina now, Scotty Montgomery. Mm-hmm. Um, is, that, is that, yeah, Montgomery. Oh, yeah, that's right. There are two Montgomerys in, in the AAC right now, and it's very confusing. Um, Shout out to Tulsa. And so, like, if they're able to kind of maybe bring in somebody with the same, from the Cutcliffe tree so to speak somebody who might stay for five six eight years i i could see that being sustained and this kind of also we'll talk about this in a minute with one of our reader questions too i'm just dumping all over our reader questions but that's how you kind of improve a hard job you don't necessarily like if, if cutcliffe had come out and won 11 games for two years and you know top 20 rankings and then like in the last two years they fell back to the 70s that'd be scary uh because it, that makes it seem like that was a one-time thing and and it can't be sustained but what cutcliffe has done is simply raise the floor to a level that can be sustained and so if duke now invests in the football program uh, and tries to build off of what he has done. I think he he has done a really impressive thing in that he's raised the floor and he's still given the program lots and lots of room for growth. Um, and the they sad were thing li- is, Bill. No, oh, no, go ahead. No, I was going to say they were you know a little lucky here and there to be uh, to have as good a record as they've had the last couple of years. Because like I said, I mean they were still in the seventies and they won nine nine games at seventy third in twenty fourteen. That's probably not sustainable, but. Uh, if you can consistently hit the top 70 mark, you're at least bowling uh, as frequently as not. So um, that's, not a, that's not a tough mark to hit. I, you, you pull up the schedule. You look at the uh, fair to middle in S&P as far as conference play goes. And here I am about to do the exact same thing that I just criticized in that their home stretch at Georgia Tech, home for Virginia Tech, North Carolina, at Pitt, at Miami. Now let's yep. let, let's take let's take those final four games. So take Georgia Tech out of it. VTech, North Carolina, Pitt, Miami. Absent of North Carolina in the last two years with Fedora, recently in college football, I would have looked at the 
Duke's ability to go probably three and one in that run. And now I think, all right, Virginia Tech probably consensus best hire of the offseason. Um, close, close behind it is probably the second best hire in the offseason, which is Rick to Miami. Okay. Also, the talent level of which is is probably going to give him uh, him and and the Canes a springboard year. Um, and then Pittsburgh made a good hire nobody talked about for a while because of the defensive guy, and it was Pittsburgh. But they're okay, so there's steady improvement there. And North Carolina was a couple plays away from being, you know, undefeated last year. So am I selling Duke short? Am I am I falling into my own trap here, or is it just is there some level of inevitability? Because you talk about in the preview. At one point, they had the fifth highest recruiting class in the ACC. Well, I mean that's that's where they finished last year. That, that was going to be my last point. Is like last year and this year are big proving ground years for Duke. Last year they re- had to replace a ton off of that, off of those you know, that twenty thirteen fourteen run where they won nineteen games. One of those teams was really was strong. The other one was you know a little less strong. But regardless, um, they proved last year just by holding steady and and still hitting about the same mark as twenty fourteen. That was a good sign of sustainability because they did it with different players than before. Um, this year is also big. I mean, number one, yeah, they, they, out of nowhere, they signed the, the top, a, a top five class in the ACC last year. And so, you know, now, if I mean, if they do that a couple times, if they can win some of these toss-up games, that's uh, I, I love adding the win probability to these preview pieces because you see, like, at Northwestern, 41%, uh, at Georgia Tech, 42%, Virginia Tech, 47 North Carolina, 43 lots of toss-ups for Duke this year. Um, if you win those and you put together a couple of good recruiting classes, then suddenly maybe you're not stuck in the seventies anymore. Maybe whenever he retires, he's handing off like a top 50 program instead of a top 70 program. Um, and you know, that, you know, that's how you kind of push the whole ship forward is, is, you know, with that slow growth, win a little bit more and then recruit a little bit better and then win a little bit more, et cetera. You know, Duke's been a little bit lucky to win as much as they have, but they've won those games. They've now signed a, a good class. If they do a couple, they do that a couple more times. We're talking about a completely different Duke program. Like he's already, he's already, like I said, raised the the floor, so to speak. But now he has a chance to raise the ceiling too. All right, let's let's make a shaky transition from a uh, warm and inviting fatherly type to the the grandfather that cracks you up at the family reunion, but or maybe not, maybe uncle. Yeah, uncle. Curmudgeonly, cur- curmudgeonly uncle. I, all I want to know is this: Are they going to be good enough to sustain him being at Georgia Tech for a couple more years? Because I would hate to think of a world without Paul Johnson as an as a Power Five <laughs> head football coach. I don't even care about the details. So I knew that Georgia Tech got hit by injuries last year. It was kind of a, you know a, a little bit of a double dip where you know they lost a bunch of guys from the 2014 team and then they lost a bunch of more a uh, bunch more via injury I did not realize how much they lost last year uh, when you start walking through exactly the like the injuries they dealt with of course they had a bad record last year there was really it was hard to avoid like they lost um, I think that I, I just wrote this out and I've already forgotten some of the they, they had one fullback who or no no fullbacks who were able to play in all 12 games uh, they were cycling constantly and they lost what they thought might be their best guy this redshirt freshman CJ Leggett who's now a sophomore he, he didn't play at all he was lost before the season started um, so you know the fullback position which is really you know in the in that spread option I mean he's the you know that's the pounding forward for four yards so that you can hit the edge guy um, they never had the same guy Patrick Scove 
Um, you know, the transfer from Stanford was okay. Four yards a carry, no, but not a ton of efficiency, not a ton of uh, big playability. Uh, and then their next three leading rushers after Thomas and Scove were freshman, freshman, freshman. Um, the, the slot back position was going to be young. The way I knew that going in, but then it started, you know, it lost probably their best guy, Quay uh, Searcy, uh, in the third game. So, like, there was no continuity in the backfield. They had already lost their top two wide receivers. They lost an All-American right guard, and then they had to shuffle only two of their five offensive line starters started all 12 games. And then on the defensive line, one guy played in all 12 games. Um, everybody else, it was co- a constant shuffle there. So, of course, they went 3-9 and nine last year. You, you, you add that to the fact that they went 1-6 and six in, in one-possession games, it really tells the story of a team that shouldn't have been nearly like in a, in a, in a right and just world would have done a lot better than three and nine. And they probably will do a lot better this year. Defense still isn't very good. So they're not going to, I doubt the ceiling is they're not you know going to threaten to go to 11 and three or whatever they did two years ago, but it would very much surprise me if they don't get back to, you know, seven, eight wins. My numbers say six because my numbers, the one thing I haven't really figured out a way to do is, is work injuries into those numbers to a certain degree. Um, but when you look at what they lost last year and now that all these guys, they return who, who had bits and pieces of playing time last year, I would be very surprised if they don't get back to at least seven, eight wins. That's, and that's all I want from a Georgia tech. I want seven, eight wins <laughs> and, and bludgeoning one pretender a year in the yeah. head with a hammer repeatedly. And that's what Georgia tech does. Uh, by the way, that, uh, that Vanderbilt game is going to be gross to watch. <laughs> it's going to be gross. Um, yeah, uh, I don't really have any ton of like a schedule question here. Um, it's, how would you advise that people take triple option teams into account when, uh, you know, I feel like it's the hardest team to do that kind of thumbnail summer projection on, you know, you, you break down, you break down information to the point where you remove so much error out of out of assumption and hypothesis, but I think it's a lot harder, not just for casual football fans, but advanced football fans to try and figure out what to do with Georgia, Georgia tech in terms of forecasting. I, I just in my head without having, with, with having read your preview, but not really did, you know, done much else with, with, with tech. I can't look at the schedule right now and feel comfortable projecting much other than lost the Clemson, uh, a loss, I would assume at North Carolina and then the rest kind of feels like a toss up. Yeah. I mean, you feel that way because they just had a really weird year. I mean, okay. Okay. after, after 2014, it was, I mean, I was, I, I thought they had a chance to be a top 10 team again last year. And clearly that was never going to happen even without the injuries. Uh, clearly that, that was not their ceiling last year, but um, I mean, I think we're just, we're reacting to them now the way they, that we, the way that we are because um, in the last two years, they've won 11 games and won three games, and who the hell knows what to do with that? So um, I don't. I, I to me, that doesn't necessarily say much about the option. It just says it's something about you know the last three years they've gone from six to 11 to three, and who the hell knows what they're capable of next? We don't have to break down Virginia in quite the same way, but I will say this: um, a lot of jokes, <laughs> some fair. Um, about Bronco Mendenhall, I think he gets the. Sh- I think he gets a. Um, he is uh, in an unfortunate uh, light because of the fits in the ACC in hiring Fuente specifically, Rick specifically. This seems out of the ordinary. Um, 
because he was at BYU for such a long time, I am willing to throw out a decent amount of BYU-related items because of because of the things I've learned about that program over the years in, in program structure, in depth chart structure, how they recruit, what they can do, et cetera, et cetera. Virginia is not really a great. It's not. It's not the best place to could to contribute to to create like a control model if you're doing a comparison, right? Like if, right. if you wanted to do a control group of like what is a coach actually capable of, and then what is he capable of at BYU? I don't know if I'd pick UVA as the best sort of um, neutral area because there's they're at a tremendous disadvantage in a lot of ways, but. I don't know what, if any, I would really carry over from from his days at BYU to to Charlottesville. Charlottesville's yeah, a, Charlottesville's a strange job, and and also BYU's the strangest job. Right, and uh, I'm kind of excited because now we can. Uh, it, it's not going to be a perfect comparison, obviously, but I, I, I am excited to learn. Like we we always talk about how weird the BYU job is. Well, what does that mean if a BYU coach goes elsewhere? Lavelle Edwards didn't go elsewhere. Um, so now it's going to be interesting to see what he can do and, and what kind of – maybe we'll get a slight read on what kind of advantages or disadvantages the BYU job holds. And, and you know, this is – he's going from weird job to weird job. Maybe that means he'll do pretty well. You know, that if he just – if he just produces the product that he produced at BYU over and over again, that's still going to be better than what Virginia's had over the last 10 years. So um, – but it is definitely when you go across the country and you have no built-in connections beforehand, it is, uh, you know, it's going to be a pretty, well, it's going to be interesting to watch. And I think you can certainly, Virginia proved, like, you can win seven or eight games every single year. That's basically what they did in the 90s. Um, but it's been a while now. They've had, they've had, they got tired of Al Groh. They dumped him after one bad year because they were tired of him winning seven games. And they have they barely won seven games over the last few years. So, um, you had maybe. a guy in Mike, I mean, you had a guy in Mike London who was doing what Virginia fans thought, uh, was fixing the problem that they, they thought was holding them back, which is recruiting. Right. And that wasn't the case. Now, you have to coach too. Yeah. Do you, can you, can you see Bronco Mendenhall winning recruiting battles against such an established brand in Virginia Tech? But then also, DJ Durkin in Maryland, um, James Franklin at Penn State, and or anyone else in the, in the more northern side of the Big Ten, or possibly below them, if you're in a Tidewater recruiting battle. If you're going into Newport News after a four or a five star, is, is Bronco the guy that lands him? Um doesn't seem like it. Again, no, though, he, but this is not Bill, this is the moment where I, I'll stop, put the asterisk on, and say all the recruiting success that one has at BYU and all the recruiting failure that one has at BYU is predicated on BYU. It has absolutely nothing to do with the coach. I firmly believe that. So, yeah, we'll find out. I mean, so far he's got, let's see, for, for 2017 he has six commitments. Um, you know, a couple of them, like one two-star, the others are three. A couple of them are pretty high three. Um, if if Bronco succeeds at Virginia, it's going to be the the formula of signing top 40 or 50 recruiting classes and cranking out a top 30 product with them. You know, he, you know, he kind of did that. He, he was signing top 50 to 70 classes at BYU, and they're usually in the top 50 or top 40. So we know he can kind of develop a program and overachieve a little bit, but that's how it's going to be. Yeah, he's not going to go in and start winning the, a ton of those battles and, and cranking out top 20 recruiting classes. And I, I would hope that they don't expect that uh, ahead of time, but I can't see that actually happening. 
I'm not even going to break down the schedule. Let's get into some very intelligent reader mail. Okay. I was actually really impressed this week. I feel like you're all um, you're doing your jobs as listeners very well. I'm proud of most of you. I don't really want to name names right now, but I read all these emails. So don't come weak, okay? Uh, Bill, where do we want to go first? Do we want to go with hard jobs? Or do we want to go with funny yeah, let's divisions? Yeah, let's do the hard job one because we've already kind of cracked that to- uh, topic a little bit. Isaac Burns, our friend Isaac, writes in and says, Bill and Steven, I have a question relating to the idea that hard jobs will always be hard. What can a school do in the long term to make a hard job less hard? I'll use my alma mater, Kansas State, as an example. Nearly three decades ago, we made a tremendous hire in Bill Snyder. Since then, he's been uh, fielded a lot of good teams and a few great ones. I think so. Uh, the university has made tens of millions of dollars in stadium and facility improvements. Uh, it, yes, they have. I, w- I went there. Uh, additionally, fan support has greatly increased uh, through both donations and ticket sales. Again, I'll interject here. Um, great environment. Great fan base. However, we struggle to recruit even at a top 50 or 60 level. And the general perception seems to be that we will fall back to pre-Snyder levels of incompetence when he finally retires for good. Is there anything Kansas State can do to improve its standing? Or does geography forever doom us having uh, doom us to having to make great hires to just regularly attend bowl games? Thank you, Isaac. Um, lots of pieces to take apart here, Bill. Um, do you want to do numbers first, and I'll get into coaches? Or Well, yeah, okay, so Kansas State is never falling back to pre-Snyder levels. Um and it's, you know, so I play this little, the, my only game that I play uh, generally is, is football manager. It's a, a soccer game. You know, it's the, the old, you become a manager of a club and then you, you know, you make all the moves and you sign these guys and blah, blah, blah. And the way you build in that game, uh, it's a very simplified way of doing it. But you basically, you know, you win and then you make more money and then you ask the board to make stadium, you know, enhancements and then you do this and then you build the facilities and then you have a more attractive program to attract talent and then you do better um, at attracting talent and, and, and on and on. That's how you, there's no, there, there's not a magic formula. That's how you make a hard job less hard. And Kansas state is absolutely less hard than it was before Bill Snyder came. And we even saw that during the, the Ron Prince era, you know, that was a really super awkward hire. We don't, you know, Ron Prince wasn't very good, or at least we think he wasn't very good. He had a really hard job. Uh, you know, Bill Snyder was still coming to work just about every day and staring down at the field when they were practicing. And um, at least that's what I heard. Uh, but he, that, you know, is, th- uh, that is true, actually. Right. I think I've heard that from the same source you heard it from, actually. Um, so, but in three years there, you know, they, they had some, you know, they had some freshman quarterback or young quarterback issues. They, they, he wasn't real good at the game management, but they had top 50 teams two out of the three years. The Prince was there. Um, the first, the Bill Snyder's last year, the last time around was 2005. They were five and six. They ranked 75th in S and P the next year. Oh, six, they went seven and six and they ranked 50th. Uh, oh, seven, they went five and seven, but they ranked 48th. Like they were pretty close to figuring some things out there. The problem was like the, the offense was bad in 06 and the offense got a lot better and the defense regressed. I mean, it's, you know, you know, any, any sort of programming, uh, or any, any sort of program building experience is like, you know, putting sand in the back of a truck. You're going to lose half of it as you go. But, um, you know, his, he probably wasn't a very good coach and, and his defense completely bombed in 08. And, and so he got fired and that's fine. Um, but even as a relatively probably not great coach, he went 17 and what, 17 and 20 in three years, uh, a bad hire. If that's what we're going to call it, a bad hire at Kansas state and before Bill Snyder would have gone 0 and 33. So, okay. That's my um, contribution. 
Perception and reality are a funny thing. First off, I'd like to say take the Braun Prince era and in, in all seriousness, take the baby and the bathwater, throw them both out, okay? Uh, isolated circumstances, to say the least. Um, it's very hard sometimes to judge your program when you have this long-term generation-spanning you know, program-defining coach there. These were questions that were often asked in Blacksburg. And, and while we haven't really found the, the answer to that, because Fuente hasn't even coached a game yet, uh, consensus there is that, yeah, they're going to survive after Beamer. Um, they're gonna, Kansas State is going to survive after Bill Snyder. It, it's an attractive job to a lot of people. Um, there are some questions in terms of where does Kansas State fit in the next 10 to 12 years of, of a value-add proposition for any kind of Big 12, you know, if they dissolve, if they expand, if they're, if they're eaten up by, by a larger Power 5. Um, a little bit of an identity crisis there, but, you know, count your blessings that you're definitely not Iowa State. And, you know, no offense to Kansas at all, but when you talk about television properties, football dominates the conversation. One of the advantages that Kansas State has that I, was kind, of fun, I kind of thought it was odd they didn't bring up is Kansas has a thriving JUCO system. And Snyder saw that. And not only did Snyder sort of bend that to his will, he really made it a function of Kansas State, Kansas's JUCO system. You are going to have to utilize that when you go to Kansas or Kansas State. Um, to a smaller degree, David Beatty's working on that right now. Um, I don't know if, if K-State has gone so far and beyond into, into utilizing the JUCO structure in the state of Kansas that I don't know if KU is ever going ever gonna to catch up. So to that, it really, in that way, it's a very, I think it's an, it's an appealing job to the right coach. Now, does Gary Patterson leave and go back to his alma mater if this job opens? Probably no. not. Probably not. Um, we have sung the praises of that TCU job um, often and loudly on this program because of, uh, and really we, we sang the praises of Baylor as well before the Brile situation. There's the combination of private money in Texas and the talent. You're, you're not going to beat that, but no. But college football is filled with inequality. You weren't supposed to beat that. Um, I, I think Kansas State is probably a better job than than Isaac realizes, if only because of their consistency. They do have an ability to get talent. I think they need to concentrate more on maybe making some some inroads east to working St. Louis to working. Um, hey, stay out of Missouri. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think maybe you schedule Missouri. I think you find a way to to, to up the profile. What does K State look like in terms of exposure over the next couple of years? I don't. I mean, I know they've got a game with Stanford, which is that is cool, and I and I dig that. I just don't know what you get out of that. Assuming that there's a return date too, I, I really uh, t- the return date is 2021. So cool, and we're all robots. Yeah, at Stanford this year, the uh, the the quote unquote biggest game in 2017 is at Vanderbilt. 2018 and 19, they have a home and home with Mississippi State, which I kind of love because they're kind of the, yeah, that, each that other fits. of each yeah. conference. Yeah. Um, and then they, they were a return trip from Vanderbilt in 2020 and a return trip from Stanford in 2021. And somehow a home and home with Arizona scheduled for 2024 and 2025 when Bill Snyder is entering his, uh, you know, whatever decade that would be of, of being Kansas state's head football coach at, at, at the age of 117. Um, so, so no, go ahead. Oh no! I was gonna. I was gonna. If you have anything else to say about Kansas State, go ahead because I was gonna make it more general from there. Uh, without getting into any kind of specifics in terms of the Big Twelve and people I've talked to, I think it would greatly benefit 
Kansas State. I had a conversation this weekend with, with a multitude of hardcore St. Louis sports fans. Cardinals first, life second. But um, twice in conversation, the what are we going to do with the Edward Jones Dome topic came up now that the Rams have vacated. It is no secret that the city, as well as that facility, which is also part of a convention center, is dying to foot, is to put some, some college football in there. I think if I'm Kansas State, I look at trying to get in there, trying to up my exposure in other markets, and maybe being a little bit more progressive in that regard. Otherwise, I don't think your talent system's broke. Now, is, is, is mythical successor coach going to be this, this soothsayer miracle worker with Juco talent and, and, and all these two-star glory stories that we've heard? Maybe not. But again, that system is not broken. So I like Kansas State's prospects. Actually, I will say this, Isaac. One, thank you for writing in. But also, I really don't think that Kansas State, I mean, I, when I first read the question, I thought, man, oh, this guy's like a Wake fan or something. It's not that bad. I guess things aren't that bad. Yeah, and uh, you know, Kansas State's always going to be a job where you have to make a great hire to be good. That's just, I mean, that's basically the case for anybody outside of the top 12 or 15 programs. That's just, yeah, I was about to say, well, you can apply that to 35 places right, right now. And so, you know, you can you can improve your lot in life, and Kansas State absolutely has. Uh, but there's still going to be a ceiling because you're still in the middle of Kansas. You're still, I mean, your school, basically Oklahoma got a 100-year head start on you. Um, and Ohio State and Alabama and, like, the, the quote-unquote heavyweights, they, they're, they, they were drawing bigger crowds than you can put in your stadium in, like, 1940. So... That's just, you know, it is the nature of college football. You're never going to catch up to that. But you know, so much of college football is just dependent on, dependent on is your next hire a bad one or a good one or a great one? And so Kansas State, whenever they do replace Bill Snyder in 2038, uh, if they can um, make a really good hire, and it's imp- almost impossible to know if you have ahead of time, um, if you make a really good hire, your program's going to be just fine. And if you don't, then you're going to be going three and nine for a while. So, I mean, that's just, that's the case for a lot of teams. Bill? Yeah. Our friend Sam Thomas has a question. With the news that the Big 12 is adding a championship game and possibly going to two five-team divisions, (sighs) have we reached a point where separating conferences into two divisions has outlived its usefulness? Yes. Godfrey has touched on the unbalanced scheduling that takes place in the SEC annually since expanding to 14 teams. And with how the ACC is currently constructed, there's really no great way to split the teams into two divisions. I would also add that the Big Ten is having huge problems here. All right, back to Sam. The Pac-12 seems to have a good setup where schools guaranteed to play every team in their conference within four years. But a nine-game conference schedule creates unequal home and away splits for divisional foes. And the Pac-12 has had their fair share of unbalanced divisions. The Big Ten, ah, here we are. The Big Ten is the first 14-team conference to go from playing eight to nine conference games this year, so it will be interesting to see what impact that has for the conference moving forward. By the way, thank you, Sam, for all of this. He's he's laid out most of the exposition in this. I think that's that's very nice. That's how you that's how, you ask a great question by providing information, but don't be too long. <laughs> Sam finishes. There are a number of articles detailing the ways uh, detailing ways on how each conference can tweak divisions. Move to a pod format, God please no, or eliminate divisions altogether. My question is what is the best format for each Power 5 conference to adopt uh, to ensure scheduling equality, protecting annual rivalries, cycling through all conference foes more frequently than once a decade, and declaring a conference champion? 
Jeez, Sam. Sam wants a lot. Okay. Um, real, real fast. They're all going to be very different. Um, it's almost impossible to protect every rivalry because as you get more provincial and you go into the deeper areas of each conference, people are going to bring up rivalries that you didn't realize were a rivalry. Okay? <laughs> as some rivalries are temporary, they're based on coaching dynamics or something that happens with a particular recruit. It lasts five or six years. Um, that happens a lot in the Southeastern Conference. I think LSU Auburn during the Tuberville Saban era or Ole Miss Arkansas right after Houston Nutt defected. Um, so that's going to be very tough. Protecting rivalries is tough, and that's the single problem that's gumming up the works in the Southeastern Conference. Bill, please don't yeah. tell me that you want to do pods. That just sounds awful. Well, first of all, there are like 30 different definitions of that. But, I, I you know, if, if by pods what we're talking about is something where you've got each school has like three specific teams or four specific teams that they would play in a given year and then you rotate everybody else, I don't hate that at all. Um, I'm not completely sure what, you know, I've seen a lot of different pods, so I'm not sure what one, what, what he was aiming at, but it, like as a Missouri fan, if you wanted to say that you're going to play, we'll say four teams. Um, so, you know, based on border or history or whatever, say you're going to play A&M Arkansas, uh, like Kentucky and Tennessee or Kentucky and Vanderbilt or somebody, the, the close teams and A&M because you came from the same conference, whatever. If you're going to play those four teams every year and then rotate uh, the other what nine available to where you're playing four of them every year. That's fine with me. Um, like that. And, and not only because it involves maybe playing Kentucky and Vanderbilt every year, that, that wasn't quite what I was going for, but Hey, geography. Um, so if that's what, if that's the idea here with pods, I I don't mind that at all. I think you could basically, you could, you're never going to make everybody happy, but you could, even with like Auburn, who apparently has a historical rivalry with everybody. Um, you could kind of get them to prioritize to a certain degree where they, okay, where, okay, you play Alabama and Georgia every year you play. I don't even know what like the third most pri- high priority rivalry with Auburn is. Um, but say you play those. And, and that's the, the, but that's the problem right there. Well, right. But like I said, you're not gonna, you've already split them up. You've already, you know, you've already got sec fans complaining that so-and-so and so-and-so don't play every year. And like, that's always going to be there. But if you acknowledge that and you say, you know, give us your top three, um, we'll make sure you play your top three. Uh, we'll try to get you a fourth from like a, you know, a certain selection. Uh, and then you're going to rotate everybody else and, and, and whatever that would mean. So you're playing, you have nine other teams to play. You're playing four of them every year. If you're not doing back-to-back home and homes every year, then you're going to get to where you're playing most of the conference within three or four years, that's not bad. Um, I, th- I could absolutely live with that. And then maybe for the conference title game, then you, you just pick the top two, you know, and, and you could even, if you wanted to overthink it, you could include some sort of, if the top two, or if there's some sort of tie or whatever, if you've played each other, then, you know, go with another team. So no rematches. I would hate that, but I could see them overthinking it. Um, but whatever that you could work with that. Um, it, to me, we don't need, like, with 12 teams, so I guess that's really only the Pac-12 now if we're talking about power conferences, um, For the, division, the division structure works just fine. Um, like, with 16 co- uh, divisions where you're playing five teams, you play three or four from the other, that, that's fine. I, I think that structure still works perfectly well. But for, for 10 and for 14, uh, divisions get really weird. And so... Um, no, I will. This was, I, I grunted, I, I, I sighed. I guess that wasn't a yes. grunt, that was a sigh. Um, the Big 12 consistently figures out a way to do something unexpectedly stupid, and I continue to lower the bar, and they continue to, to Trip over not it. clear it. Um, so 
I think a conference title game when you've already played all nine games, conference games, or uh, all nine, uh, the other, when you've played everybody in a conference, perfect round robin, a conference title game at the end of that is dumb. Um, you want to make whatever Boren said, the extra 27 or Bullsby or whatever it was, if you want to make the extra 27 or 28 million a year for that, fine. Uh, but then, so I was already, I was already accepting that they were going to be dumb about this. And then they said, well, we're going to, we'll probably do two five team divisions and have the two division champions play each other in the, in the title game. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You, you do divisions because you can't play everybody. And, you know, you, this way you, you maintain geographic rivalries or whatever. You're, you know, there are a lot of reasons to have divisions. But this would be having them simply to have them. Like, so you can, it, it's not hard to craft a scenario. And I was joking about this on Twitter. So OU and TCU next year in 2017 tie for the division, the South division, quote unquote, at eight and one. Um, but they don't play each other in the conference title game. It'd be like OU playing six and three West Virginia instead because West Virginia is a quote unquote division champion. Even though let's say that OU and TCU have both beaten West Virginia. Um, that's crazy. That is absolutely stupid in every possible way. Um, there's just, uh, you, you play everybody. There's absolutely no need to have divisions if you play everybody. And you know so, what's funny about the playing everybody bit that they've been jamming down our throats? And, and, and man, one true champion, one true player. Champion. Like I, I, I've been to the Big Twelve media days. I think this year, this year we've been my fifth total and third in a row, and they hammer us on that. Ever since I think it's been however many years now that they've done that. It's funny because it masks their weirdness about rivalries, which is every school wants to play Texas and beat them. You have a couple in-state rivalries, and then after that, nobody wants to claim anything. It's the strangest damn thing I've ever seen. It goes back to the Baylor TCU. It's not a rivalry. Uh, we're not even going to spend the money to make it. Like it's just, it's so insane. So it, every school will admit that they want to beat Texas, and they, if they have a direct in-state, so like K State and Kansas and Oklahoma and Oklahoma and Bedlam, like that's pretty much it. West Virginia, yes, West Virginia. Oh, well, we just want to be, you know, we miss playing Pitt. It's if you establish divisions. You're going to have to outline games of relevance, and and it's it's talking about your kind of name your three here. The Big Twelve is going to own up to, or a lot of these programs are going to have to own up to the fact that they have a vested interest in winning certain games more so than others. This doesn't really matter as far as on the field goes. It's such a fascinating fan culture. Well, let me put it this way: this whole we just want to win Texas crap. Let me put it this way: like I, I am a fan of a team that wasn't the Big Twelve. I don't miss playing Iowa State. I don't miss playing Texas Aww. Tech. I don't miss playing. I don't really even miss playing Texas A&M. They came with us. Um, I don't miss Kansas State. I kind of miss OU and OSU because I'm from Oklahoma. Um, I I don't really miss playing OSU, but it was an excuse to go back to Oklahoma. I kind of miss OU. I miss playing Nebraska. I miss playing Kansas and other sports. I mean, the, the Missouri-Kansas football rivalry was good for three years, and that's it. Um but no, I miss playing Nebraska and OU and maybe Texas when we had a chance to be better than them. And, you know, we played Iowa State every year going back to like the 1920s. I don't miss playing Iowa State. Let me throw in here real fast. Love the new white helmets, by the way, Cyclones. I see you out there. I think yeah. it looks baller as hell. Um, yeah. Okay, real fast. Let's actually go through and try and fix these in like two sentences. Um, I think the Pac-12 is okay. Do you think the Pac-12 is okay? Yeah, it's a little unbalanced now, but it's been it, it'll go back and forth depending on who USC and UCLA and Stanford and Oregon and everybody else hire. Like that's I'm not like there's no permanent problem there with a the geography perspective. I don't think. Yeah, I like. Um, so I think, I, think I like. Yeah, I think I like the Pac-12 the best. 
some people might talk about um, uh, unbalanced, but again, I'm not the dude who hypes USC. In fact, it drives me insane. <laughs> but that that feels the North dominance feels very cyclical, very cyclical. And I think every rivalry is, is addressed. I think they probably need to do a better job with their t- conference title game. I don't know if if putting it in Santa Clara is the best move every year, but other than yeah. that, I think they've done the best job. Uh, real fast. I have been told by people at programs in the Big Ten East that they would welcome expansion if they could rejigger the lines again because this thing is – a lot of the programs are very frustrated that it's it's so – I guess you can't say front lo- side-loaded, east-loaded. <laughs> um, they need to do something to address it. I think it eventually – if you go on, it reminds me way, way, way too much of the old Big 12 divisions. Um of the South just absolutely dominating the North. Um, so let me let me stop you right there. Okay. Um, SEC East versus West. East was better in the 90s. Big 12 North versus South. North was better in the 90s. Maybe it's something about the 90s, but yeah, um, sure. a lot of this imbalance has, has been caused by the fact that Michigan State made a great hire. Nebraska hasn't. Wisconsin we don't know about for sure. Like, but, but, just if, do you, but do, if you see playing out 10, 15, 20 years, do you just – I just don't know. Well, okay, to do that, you have throw to throw Michigan back. State in the West or something. Just, I well, feel like yeah, it's just yeah, I mean, one they, team too, too unbalanced, just one no, if team they, if they wanted to, If they wanted to stick Michigan State over there, I wouldn't, I wouldn't complain at all. But just like I, I would say, you know, you're only as good as your next hire, but that's exactly what has caused this imbalance. If Mark yeah. D'Antonio goes to like the NFL and Nebraska finally figures out I can, it, who to hire that's, you know, pretty good – uh, it's really, I mean, you, it's really a combination of Michigan State and exactly what you said about Nebraska. It really yeah, just goes back to I like to blame every problem in the Big Ten apparently on Nebraska not living up to what they were, <laughs> but no, it's, it's kind of mean. Um, well, no, that's you said. So you said we need to project 15, 20 years out. Well, look twenty years back. Okay. Um, the the divisions seem like they should be, other than the fact that Ohio State, Michigan, and Penn State are on one side, and only Nebraska is on the other. Um, I th- first of all, I think setting it up like that undersells how s- consistently solid Wisconsin has been. Um, but, you know, so, yeah, historically it's a little bit imbalanced. But the reason we're complaining about it is because Michigan State's better than average, uh, better than Michigan State has been for the last 40 years, basically. And Nebraska is is not terrible. And, and like as I've said on this podcast before, they could be solid. They could win the West this year. Um they are still not as good as they were in the 70s, 80s, 90s. So that's that's why this imbalance, why we're complaining about it. And, and in theory, that's one hire or two hires, I guess, away from being rectified. So, no, p- put Michigan State in the West. Like, switch them in Indiana. I don't care. Um, but it, it, that, that's why we're complaining is just it comes down to hires. American uh, – American, no, we're not doing that. I'm sorry. Uh, ACC is meh. Yeah, there's really – yeah, it's it's – that would be a good, I think, a good pod. Uh, you know, we we're talking about three or four rivals each. That if would be you really wanted to that. experiment, this is this is the this is your test kitchen, I think. This is your test kitchen for regionals because you can separate the BCs and Syracuses of the world from Miami and and Georgia Tech and Florida State, and I don't think anyone complain. Does anyone care? Yeah, I think it's unfair right now the way it's set up because. Um, North Carolina has a very clear path to the division title every year, and NC State's never going to win it. Um, and NC State, even if NC State is consistently slightly better than North Carolina, not saying they are, I don't want to inflame that at all, but even if they were, 
they would still have to get past Clemson and Florida State and maybe Louis and now maybe Louisville to win the division one of these years. North Carolina just has to get past Pitt and Duke and you know Virginia Tech and Miami could could be Virginia Tech and Miami again, but you know just looking at the current structure, it does seem like when when you're when you're spanning that big an area um, and really when you're having to split up teams that are close to each other because of the you know Atlantic Coastal because North South wouldn't be fair. Um, it seems to me that would be really good where, you know, okay, okay, Boston College, you're going to play Syracuse and Pitt and I, I don't know, one of the North Carolina schools every year. Um, and then you're going to rotate everybody else. It kind of seems like that would be perfect for that conference because you do have these little pods of like the Northern and the, and the Central and the Florida and the Georgia, you know, South Carolina, et cetera. Like a lot of schools cluster together and then a lot on either side. It seems like that'd be perfect for a pod. I know you love the word pod. South Carolina or South Carolina, uh, SEC. Well, they should have just taken Clemson instead, but uh, SEC, it's real simple. Uh, just break permanent cross division and you can solve the whole problem. All you have to do is sacrifice Alabama, Tennessee, which is the chunkiest, most one-sided, not really a rivalry rivalry in the Southeastern Conference. Uh, come at me. And then you'd also lose Auburn, Georgia, which to me just doesn't have the kind of luster. The, the problem with those two rivalries is they are not respected outside of those schools. Those schools have an unbalanced amount of influence on the way things work in Birmingham. It's that simple. If you break permanent cross division and keep, you could even keep Missouri in the East right now or flop them. It doesn't matter. You can move Auburn to the East. It could be, it doesn't matter. You can break permanent cross division and solve every problem. And that way you, you get to see you, you would lose LSU Florida in terms of annual marquee, but you would gain so many more annual marquee games. 52 to 38 all time, Alabama, Tennessee. It's pretty even. Just saying. No, I meant uh, when I, I meant streaky is what I, I go go look at the look at the history <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, of, yeah, no, of the no, streaks no, in that rivalry. Yeah, it's insanely streaky rivalry, and what happens over time, and this right now is a great example, is that one one base just gets so far beaten down that the excitement and the buzz just it, it doesn't match up. I say this, I've, I've lived in Tennessee for ten years now, and I live through three counties from the Alabama line, whatever Nashville is. So. It just doesn't – I mean, I can tell you firsthand Tennessee fans aren't – they hate Alabama. That's great, but they also hate Georgia, and they also hate Vanderbilt, and lately they hate Ole Miss for recruiting reasons. And it's it, – you can sacrifice those games. And really the one that was created out of the division structure was LSU-Florida. It became sort of this secret sleeper hit because yeah. those programs were really good and you got that annual matchup you would gain so much more. You would have the ability to rotate in and you would get Georgia LSU more often. You would get Georgia Alabama more often. You would get Florida Ole Miss more often. You would Georgia get, Alabama I mean, so Georgia so Alabama by the way is hilarious in the amount they haven't played. Yeah. Like even that, before even before the division structure like when I was going through the 80s in my, at study hall doing my year to year estimated rankings thing. Like they played like once in the 80s. And then they split divisions. So, like, they've never been conference rivals. It's crazy. Which is, and it is very crazy because they sure as hell are conference rivals every February. And uh, Texas A&M yeah. fans have talked to me about this where, hey, absolutely excited. So glad we're not dealing with Texas in the Big 12 anymore. But, like, damn, it sure would be cool to play, like, Georgia and Florida a little more often. Oh, cool. South Carolina again. Awesome. It's, it's great. 
Yeah, uh, um, Billy Gamilla and I were, were talking on Slack the other day, the, you know, LSU fan, uh, about basically that. Like, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it to the LSU-Missouri game uh, this fall because uh, I might be somewhere else. Uh, but we, we're joking, well, well 2039, we'll, uh, we'll try to make sure to, to hit that one the next time we, Missouri rolls through Baton Rouge. Um, no, I, you know, I, I don't really have much of a problem with the divisions as they currently are. Uh, I know everybody's complaining about balance, but again, if Georgia, if, if, if Georgia's new, uh, Saban-ish hire turns Georgia into Alabama, then we don't have much imbalance. And as a Missouri fan, I kind of ranted about this on Rock M the other day, like, for all, for all the talk about, you know, the Missouri in the East, that's crazy. Missouri is now playing on a year-to-year basis four teams in states they border. You know, Arkansas, Kentucky, Nashville, geez, Vanderbilt, and Tennessee, uh, they play those four teams every year. That's almost as good as they had it in the Big 12. Like, the long trips are long, but in the Big 12, they had A&M and Baylor and Texas and Texas Tech uh, that they were playing at least one of those just about every year. Like, there are long trips and short trips. They have a decent number of short trips right now and so it's called the east and that makes it seem weird but missouri has actually got it pretty pretty geographically good um so i don't i don't mind the divisions but i like i said i think the sec would be pretty good for a pod too a great question sam we appreciate it let's stop stalling how's that voice you're good as intimidating you, uh, you feel scary, scary now feel oh scary. definitely definitely sure yeah okay don't be a dick um, all right, it's time for a little blind box score. Bingo. Um, every week, you, the reader, submits a blind box score with the name stripped off. Um, if you would like to participate in this, email me. Do not email Bill. Uh, send me a box score with the names or the logos ripped off of it, Photoshop, however you want to do it. Attach that, please, and then give me the link to the actual box score, the actual gamer, so then we can reveal uh, what game it was. We ask usually that you keep games within the last two to three seasons just for relevance sake. Also, I would again advise the goal of this game is not to find the weirdest box score. A lot of you are sending me some awesomely, really terrible games, insane, awful, awful things, just crimes against the sport. The problem is, well, for one, Bill may actually remember that if it's too strange. And the second thing is, it makes it easier to figure out what happened. So... Try and find one that matches up evenly or has one or two uh, particular things. We're trying to sort of stump the Schwab here, as we always say. Bill? Yeah. Are you ready for box score bingo? Let's go. Um, Our box score bingo was sent in by Chris Mastenbrook. These colors have absolutely uh, nothing to do. Well, let me put it this way. He put two colors together. To cover up things, and I'm just going to use those. Okay, I don't. We'll figure it out later. There's a black team and a green team. All right. Yeah. <clears throat> Bill, it's time to play box score bingo. The black team had 28 first downs. The green team had 32. The black team was six of 12 on third down efficiency. The green team was six of 17. The black team was one of one on fourth down efficiency. The green team was three of five. The black team had 581 total yards. The green team had 527. The black team had 440 yards. Passing, the green team had 220. The black team was 33 of 46 passing. 
The green team was 20 of 34. The black team averaged 9.6 yards a pass. The green team averaged 6.5. The black team threw one interception. The green team had no interceptions. The black team had 141 yards rushing. The green team had 307. The black team rushed 28 times for an average of 5 yards a rush. The green team rushed 55 times for an average of 5.6. The black team was penalized 13 times for 72 yards. The green team was penalized 9 times for 79 yards. The black team had one turnover, which would be the aforementioned interception. The green team had none. There were no fumbles lost in the game. Time of possession was 32 minutes, 33 seconds for the black team. 27 minutes, 27 seconds for the green team. Bill, what happened in this football game? This is a really, really good one. Uh, Let me just start there. Um, This, uh, you know, looking through here, um, you know, I see certain things and I'll say, well, that might be because of this. And then there's an automatic contradiction for it. So very, very well done on this one. So um, green team had 32, had more first downs, which is usually a sign of efficiency. And they were the team that ran 55 times to throw in 34. That um, suggests ball control. And then you see that they went six for 17 on third down and only had the ball for 27 minutes. Uh, That does not suggest ball control. Uh, Black team, 46 uh, pass attempts to 28 rushes. Obviously, we don't know sacks there, but we'll we'll assume there weren't like 17 of them or something really weird. Um, That could suggest that the black team was behind and therefore had to throw a lot, but they had the ball in nearly 33 minutes. That means they weren't really in a hurry with their 46 passes. Um, so let's see, total snaps would be 89 for green and, uh, 74 for black. That means green was moving much more quickly than black, but green was also running the ball a lot. It's a good one. This is a, this is, this is a good one. Um, let's see. So green team, I guess was moving a lot more quickly than the black and Okay, Godfrey, what do you want to know here? Do you want to know who won? Do you want to know... I don't really care. You you can make a guess as to who won, because the stats are so even here, I don't really think that's the point. Tell me a little bit about... Okay, so... How how about about this? How about scoring margin, I think, is interesting here? And... All right, so... I'm going to leave the rest up to you, because this is a tough one. You've been kind of... Swinging that swag a little bit, so that's a terrible <laughs> sentence. I apologize. Yeah, that was that was wretched. Um, all right, so green you know team was wretched. Your fear right now. <laughs> green team was moving much more quickly. Okay, uh, I'm guessing they they don't, they weren't really holding on to the ball. That means they probably weren't. I mean, they weren't sitting on the ball, so they weren't like trying to protect a lead uh, for a long period of time. So that tells me it was probably pretty close. Uh, black team. Only attempted 28 rushes to 46 pass attempts, or maybe even more than that, assuming a couple of those rushes were sacks. Uh, But they were the more steady team. They were better on third down. Uh, The green team was pretty bad on third down. Now, granted, they were three for five on fourth down, so that makes up for some of that. I'm guessing here that the green team won the game. Uh, Green, I'm guessing there's a decent chance that the green team was like an Oregon or a Baylor, probably more an Oregon than a Baylor uh, or, you know, bowl game Baylor, I guess. Um, 
and I'm so I'm, I'm guessing that the green team won, but they weren't able to pull away. The black team was able to generate first downs and 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 you know clearly had at least a few big pass plays. Nine point six yards per pass is a lot, but I guess being that the the green team had the three hundred seven rushing yards, being that the uh, black team had the only turnover unless there was some crazy as I always say unless there was some craziness with field position or finishing drives I'm guessing the green team wins here finishing drives seems to be the the leitmotif of where you you need the most in these deals that's the right one but it also it also blank. gives it away like if I have right, that right. then I can pretty much exactly tell you and so it's not fair okay all right you ready yep this was a strange one but I, I thought it was a good challenge and and I'll read the whole email when we're done <clears throat> November 14th, 2015, Dateline, Bloomington, Indiana. Oh. Michigan quarterback Jake Rudolph kept oh. taking advantage of his opportunity Saturday. Six times he threw for touchdowns. Twice he saved the Wolverines' conference title hopes. And when he finally saw Michigan's usually stout defense make a goal line stand in the second overtime, a relieved Rudolph finally got to celebrate by, si- by singing with his teammates to the people who made the trip to Bloomington. What a schlocky third graph that was. Uh, the fifth-year senior threw one TD pass with two seconds left in regulation and two more on uh, two more uh, two more on more on back-to-back. Oh, there's a typo in the AP report on back-to-back plays in overtime. Then watched excitedly as Indiana's Mitchell Page bobbled a pass on fourth and goal from the two-yard line to help Michigan barely fend off Indiana, 48 to 41 in double overtime. Um, how do you feel like you did here? This one's even kind of hard to judge. It's a tough one. I know you thought you, you were – tell me why you thought you were, you were seeing um, an Oregon or a Baylor type. It might have been the green color. I don't know. Um, maybe that threw me off the scent. No, I, you know, the, an Oregon, that, that would be pretty good. Nearly 90 snaps um, and a lot of rushes. Now, Indiana's – Indiana kind of shifted to being run heavy. And, and so, yeah, Indiana was the green team, right? That's what I'm looking up right now. Give me two seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Um, yeah. yeah. Indiana so was Indiana. the green team, and Michigan was the black team. He when it, So when I was so – I stuttered earlier introducing everything. I said, I don't think these colors have any news because for some reason I knew it was Michigan, but I saw Michigan State in the green, and I had a disassociative moment. Um, <laughs> the colors did have nothing to do. He did the right thing. So, so um, I said the green team probably won unless something happened with um, finishing drives. So Indiana finishing drives in that game – Field goal, field goal, field goal, touchdown, touchdown, field goal, touchdown in regulation. Uh, so they had, uh, what, seven chances and scored three touchdowns. Michigan had touchdown, 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 field goal, missed field goal, interception, field goal, touchdown. So uh, in the end, that ended up being, being about the same, really. This is a, yeah, this was a good one. Uh, you know, I said Indiana probably didn't have much of a lead to protect it. This was a very close game uh, all the way through Indiana tried to protect it late and couldn't. Um, and then I guess maybe with the, the other part of that uh, Michigan being the team with fewer snaps moving more slowly by that point in the year, they weren't really running the ball very much at all. Like uh, Devion Smith had 12 carries for 58 yards. That was mostly a Rudock passing team. Um, no, let me, re- like that let, me, was... let me read you what Christopher wrote in, uh, Chris okay. Mastenbrook. Uh, hey, Stephen, first off, I want to say I really enjoyed the podcast. It's great to have an oasis of in, uh, intelligent college football talk, especially in the doldrums of the offseason. Don't know who you're talking about, bro. <laughs> um, I wanted to submit this game, 2015 Michigan and Indiana, because watching it as a Michigan fan probably took a year or two off my life. There were several key points in this game, including a nearly fumbled extra point snap near the end of regulation with Michigan down one. Mere weeks after the game, which must not be named, that was Sparty. 
where Michigan almost lost, and and watching how we struggled to even slow down Indiana by way of UAB running back Jordan Howard made it seem like we were lucky to come away with a win, which made it extra. Which just just wait. (laughs) Which made it extra surprising when Bill's stats claimed Michigan gave a 75th percentile performance with an 88 percent win expectancy. He's talking. He's talking a little little smack. I like this. This is fantastic. I'm therefore curious to see if he can reverse engineer this wild, wild game, or if he comes up with a mo- with a much safer victory that his numbers suggested should have happened. So I'm looking at one of the things that I hadn't noticed when I first scrolled through there. There was a punt return touchdown, which um, you know at this point, like with my win expectancy, basically it's all any sort of return touchdown is kind of random. Um, okay, like a, a good return. You can have consistently better returns than your opponent, but still breaking one is kind of random and and, um, and and not really frequent enough to ever really predict. So, okay, that that's one of the things the numbers would have seen there. Um, Indiana got a punt return touchdown and therefore was kind of lucky to be in it, I guess. Um, let's see here. Overall, so Michigan averaged 7.9 yards per play to Indiana's 5.9. I didn't really pick up on that when I was going through there. Um, that, that's the other part of why Michigan would have had such a, a huge, um, win expectancy is you, you outgain your opponent by two yards per play. You're almost certainly going to win. So then the question becomes, how did Michigan almost lose? Turnover was one punt return was one. Um, that was that. That's a built-in like seven to ten points right there. Seven to twelve points right there. Um, I guess really maybe that's it. The Michigan, let's see, missed a field goal. Uh, Indiana didn't miss one, but had to attempt one more. No, this was a good one. This was a weird, weird, weird game that I really enjoyed watching uh, and felt terrible about at the end because Indiana doesn't get many of those chances. I'm really excited to talk about well. God, sometimes I just catch myself in statements that feel so terribly cliche to this podcast. But I'm really excited to talk about Indiana when we get to your Big Ten preview. Um, just because, God, they've been inconsistent and haven't Close. really met their promise. But it, they've just been so fun to watch do terrible, strange things out of nowhere. I mean, it's like getting into a fist fight with someone who's 100 pounds lighter but who has C4 wired to their chest. I mean, it's just it's fantastic. I yeah, they were they, they were six and seven, and they ranked sixtieth last year. That is like boring in every possible way. And then you then you start look at their schedule, and you remember they almost beat Ohio State and Michigan. Uh, they lost to Duke because of a field goal they made but missed, or missed but made, or something. Um, they had their crazy, ridiculous Rutgers loss, uh, where they were up like whatever it was, where we were all watching the Michigan Michigan State game, and then watching the Rutgers. Wait, wait, what? Wasn't Indiana up by twenty four? Um, and then they lose. They lost by eight to Iowa. Um, the the fact that they were able to rebound from all these dumb losses and then win their last two games to reach a bowl at all was really impressive to me. But no, that was a crazy, boring six and seven number sixty season. Let's end on Indiana. We we hit Duke. We hit all the powerhouses this week. Bottom <laughs> of the ACC. I feel like we I feel like we really accomplished something. Um, I don't. I can't even tell if I'm being serious anymore. It's it's June. Um, we we started with Conference USA. We finished with Indiana. What more does uh, does a college football uh, fan want from this podcast? I hope you're happy, listener. I do hope you're happy. We appreciate your support. Keep sending me those meaningful scores. Um, we're building up to a crescendo there. I don't really know how many I need. So until I figure out how many I need and actually get a graphic designer working on this thing, keep sending me the scores. Um, That's right. At we some need point, your favorite we are going to dedicate an episode uh, to. 
just really some like some funny and some kind of sentimental and and kind of sad stories uh, associated with these games. Uh, by the way, one of you has already emailed in and picked the, the game that I picked, so that was pretty cool. Um, all right, uh, same time next week. Uh, thanks for listening. Yep. <laughs>